All right, let's pray and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace to us as always. We thank you for the possibility and the ability and the invitation to approach you and learn about you and uh, hear from you in your word. And we are doing this, God, because we want to know you in an ever-increasing way. We know that we could never fully know you because you are infinite in your being. We confess that. And yet we are allowed and commanded, really, to seek you and to pursue you and that you will reward us for doing so with yourself so I pray that tonight I pray that even as we talk about concepts that can be sometimes abstract in our minds or hard to really nail down in concrete ways yet that you would give us the understanding we need and and that we would gain more of a a heart of worship for you and as we've been praying God that we would love you more and more and that that would work its way out in our lives as your people so we pray for this in the name of Jesus amen okay so um, I want to do me a favor and turn to John chapter 4 like I said we'll be in uh, Exodus shortly but John chapter 4 is where we're going to launch off tonight. And um, did we have enough handouts there? Okay. And uh, we'll look at, just a second, just a couple verses from the account uh, of, of the Lord and the woman at the well. But, um, but on your handout, let me... Let me I, I really just am going to focus on the first part of this and then um, in that, and yet I want to read the whole thing because it's really wonderful in my opinion anyway. It is from the Westminster uh, Confession of Faith which was written in the 1640s. So this is a doctrine that is, or document that is uh, hundreds of years old and um, a good parallel to it is the London Baptist Confession, because not to be outdone, but the Baptist Puritans wanted a confession of faith that is very similar, using the Westminster in so many different ways, and yet when you get to baptism, uh, then they're making it very clear that we do not baptize infants any longer, we baptize believers. So, But uh, it's, uh, the Westminster Confession is a beautiful statement, especially under their, their doctrine of God. And there are four points under that, but I've only got the one here, and I'll, sh- I'll, I'll explain why after I've read this, what I wanted to intro into. Before we look at Exodus 33 and 34, and that discussion that um, Moses has with the Lord and asks the Lord to see his glory, and then the glor- Lord's response to him We see really two responses in 33 and 34 that are very instructive for us understanding who God is. But before we jump into that, I wanted to talk about something that I think is important for when we're reading the Old Testament in these accounts and when we're learning about the doctrines of God so we don't draw wrong conclusions. Okay, now here, let's uh, read this. Uh, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, 
invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And you will see that pop up in our text later. Okay, some of these phrases are just taken right from passages that we're looking at to form our theology about who God is, right? The rewarder of them that diligently seek him and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, Let's just say this before we go any further. I want to talk about the fact that if you were to take this, this one statement that they made about God, I hope you would agree with what you're reading here but you'll, you've noticed that you could probably think of verses from the Bible by which they drew these conclusions, right? I mean, I named one of them to you. We're going to see the, uh, in Exodus uh, 34 where he says God is, a compa- is compassionate, and he'll say forgiving all three types of sin, iniquity, transgression, and sin. And we won't get to that tonight, but that will be something we'll look at, what God forgives as this forgiving God and, and how amazing that is. But they're, t- they're drawing these things right from uh, Scripture. One exercise that I have recently, within the last year or so, added into my daily devotional time is a time in which I will read a portion of a historic Uh, doctrinal statement or confession of faith and I find that very exhilarating and encouraging to do just as a part of it maybe just one section like something like this I would have I'm going right now through the London Baptist Confession and I'll just take one of those parts or maybe two of them if it's a little short and read through it but this is what we do right in the doctrine of God we would look into scripture and then we draw our conclusions about God based upon what Scripture has said. That's doing theology. This is theology. This is a doctrinal statement about God. And everything they have put, we could draw from various texts, and that certainly is what we're going to do. Okay. But now notice this beginning part, and this is why I think this is so important before we get into Exodus 33, where they say, uh, he, uh, he is, uh, there is but one, uh, only, one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, we're going to talk about that, invisible and without body, parts, or passions, okay? Without body, parts, or passions. Anybody remember from last semester, way back in the fall, we were talking about this concept and I think I even had this on a handout. Um, what doctrine is this about God that we, we drew our conclusion? Does anybody remember? When we say that God is without body. Uh, okay, non-corporeal, yes, is one of the things like he is. So he's spirit. We'll talk about that in a moment. He doesn't have a body. Um, but it's the doctrine of divine simplicity. Do you remember that? When you say God is simple, what you mean is uh, not that he is not complex because he is c- 
completely complex to us, you see. But when we talk about God's being simple, it means he isn't comprised of parts that make him God. And it's not like you take, you know, different pieces and put it together and if you just assemble enough of those pieces, there you go, now you got God. And when we're going through the attributes of God, which we'll be looking at this week and next, this week is God's glory, next week will be other things, God's compassion, other things. It's not like if you just assembled all of those, all of those attributes and put them together, you would, out would come God, right? It isn't, that isn't what God, God is a, uh, is, doesn't, isn't comprised of parts that you put together. This includes the Trinity, Okay. So when we think about God as Father, Son, and Spirit, it isn't as though he's part Father and he's part Son and he's part Spirit. And if you put those three together, now you have God. So sometimes people will say, well, um, how do you understand the Trinity? And they'll say, well, it's kind of like an egg. There's a yolk and there's a white and then there's a shell, but they're all one egg. The problem and where that breaks down is that it violates this doctrine of divine simplicity and that we are actually dividing God up as though, you know, he is comprised of those three things and when you add those three things together, it's God, okay? God is of one being and essence, okay? So, uh, but it's that idea of divine simplicity that becomes important when we're reading uh, passages in Exodus 33 and 34 and the fact that God is spirit, and is not comprised of body parts, okay, body or parts or, or passions. We'll talk about passions at a later time, but think about the idea of the body or different parts of God, okay? He is non-corporeal. Now, Jesus made this statement very clear. Um, you know, in the scriptures, you can read through, and there are certain things that God just, that is said about God in a very uh, direct way. So we know John's well-known statement, God is love, right? Um, We could see other things about God that he is this, right? And what Jesus will say in John chapter 4 in verse 24, and he's talking to the woman at the well, and he says, God is what? Spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, the conversation, the context of the conversation, remember, is that uh, she being from Samaria and all of the history that goes on there with those Samaritans that was really right in the middle of of what was complete geographical bordered Israel, and they were the ones that were deported out of the land even before the the Babylonians came in and got the the southern tribes, and then some of them came back, and and then more Gentiles came in, so they became kind of mixed people. There were they had Jewish ancestry, but they were also Gentiles, and they formed their own. Really, they they took what they wanted from the Old Testament and claimed it for themselves and left off the rest. And then they they said that they're supposed to worship on uh, was it Mount Gerizim and and this is where it should be the worship not over here at, in in uh, Jerusalem on Mount Zion but here Mount Gerizim and these types of things. And so the question was, well, who's right? Jesus, are the Jews right or the Samaritans right? And should we be worshiping here or there? And 
uh, Jesus says God is spirit. And it's really irrelevant, and it's going to become more so, where the person worships, because no matter where they are, God is there. Which means we could worship God as much here as we could, right, in Jerusalem, at the temple. God is spirit, and he is invisible. That means he's invisible, he's without parts or passions. That's very important to to understand because we're about to embark in Exodus 33 and Exodus 34 and watching a discussion go on and some events go on between Moses and the Lord in which the Lord is going to use terminology about himself that would almost imply he has a body. So he's going to say something like this. He's going to say, you can't see my face. You can see my backside, but you can't see my face. Or we'll go into, you go into other passages of scriptures and you see that the, the God has eyes. Or that he, you know, uh, has ears. Or he has an arm. Or he has a hand. And immediately in our minds, when we're thinking of that, we're thinking of eyes and hands and arms. Uh, we're thinking of very, in very human ways. But one key uh, understanding of uh, Scripture is that when God speaks of himself, he speaks of himself with uh, what we call anthropomorphisms. Uh, anthropomorphisms, that should be on your handout there. And these are attempts to express the truth about God through human analogies. So that God is really condescending in these to help us understand as much as we can about who he is. Okay? We cannot take these things literally, otherwise we have really made God what he is not in our minds. This idea that God is, doesn't have parts and the idea of the divine simplicity and his invisibility and that God is spirit. The, the idea behind that is where God gives us that command in the Ten Commandments that you are not to make an image of me. Because there is no reducing me to some image or to some form or, you know, uh, okay, we see God has eyes, so let's draw some eyes here. We see he has an arm. We can draw an arm. We can see this. Say, hey, here's God right here. Put them together. We don't know exactly what it looks like. Here's his face, you know. So this would be, that would be wrong. (laughs) That would be idolatry because God is infinite in his being. He is invisible, most pure spirit without body. And whenever we see uh, God doing that in Scripture, these are anthropomorphisms. That really just comes from uh, two words, two Greek words, anthropos, which means man or human, and then morphe, which means form. So we're thinking about that, and he's Uh, It's an attempt, like one author said here, it's an attempt to express the truth about God through human 
analogies so that we can understand as much as we can about him. Uh, under that, I have two definitions that both come from, um, I actually should have had this on the handout. This is from Alan Carnes, C-A-I-R-N-S. I've used this before in the class, but the Dictionary of Theological Terms. He breaks uh, this idea of an anthropomorphism into two sections here. Number one, the representation of God under a human form. And then two, he says, the figure of speech by which Scripture attributes human parts, actions, affections, and emotions to God. Thus, while God is a pure spirit, has no bodily parts or passions, the Bible speaks of his eyes, his ears, his hands, etc. God does not have actually any bodily parts. When the Bible attributes human characteristics to God, it speaks metaphorically to enable us to understand an otherwise abstract truth. Thus, God's eyes speak of his knowledge, his hand speaks of his action, his heart speaks of his love, his face speaks of his presence, and he's just giving examples there, okay? So we don't want to attribute these to God. And one of the problems uh, that has arisen in church history that was identified as a real problem and, and heretical was uh, looking at something like Genesis 1, and what are we told there? Man is made in what? The image of God. And they say, well, look here. Uh, Adam and Eve, we can, we can easily see each other and we can see humans. Well, there it is. That means God must have these things. This is what God looks like. Or uh, we've been based off the pattern of God, you see. And then you have uh, uh, that kind of heresy running through. Mormonism has a form of that, by the way. Uh, if you trace through their... Uh, theology, but it's the idea that uh, we see the image of God, and by that he means not just uh, some non-corporeal parts of a human being as, as far as uh, who we are, eternal beings and spirit in ourselves and uh, communication and different things like this and the rule of God and all those types of things, but meaning literally. This is kind of the blueprint of what God looks like. We're little representations of him, and God is somehow in human form. But this is just not the, uh, not the case at all, and um, God is uh, spirit. Now, here is something really neat. Now, we're, we'll end this part after this, and I want to get into Exodus here, but look at Philippians chapter 2. Uh, remember now those two words that make up an anthropomorphism is anthropos, which is human or man, and then morphe, which is form. Those are two Greek words. They just put them together and made a word for us. Now, those two Greek words are used in Philippians 2, interestingly enough, and really make Philippians 2 breathtaking, especially in our study of the doctrine of God. So you'd go, you look at Philippians 2. He says in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, that word form, morphe, okay? And what, the, what Paul is thinking about here is when he thinks about the form of God and the Son being in the form of God prior to the incarnation means he was in very essence and being God. So that... 
Jesus would say, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world was, when I was in the form, the morphe of God. Okay? Very one with God, one in essence with God, the eternal being of God in glory. And he says, uh, He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. And there's our other words, this idea that this becomes a man, right? He humbled himself by becoming a death. So that's where you have your anthropos and then you have your uh, morphe. So in other words, the, what God has given us most clearly in an anthropomorphism to understand who he is is not necessarily in his descriptions of him having eyes or, or ears or a hand or an arm. It's in whom? Jesus, right? He is the anthropomorphism of God. And he is the one who has taken on human flesh and reveals fully to us who God is. For in him bodily all the fullness of the de deity dwelled, right? And it's like he is now showing us who God is so that when he's asked, let us, we want to see the Father. Well, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Not in the sense of the human form, of course, because that's impossible. Because the Jews knew God didn't have a body. They knew that God was invisible. They knew that God... Uh, was infinite in his being and not comprised of any of these things. That's what makes, by the way, the incarnation so breathtaking. And what Jesus said, would say about that and what Paul would say about Jesus is blasphemous if it weren't true, okay? So we need to know these things before we go in so that we don't make any mistakes when we interpret some of the things about God that he says about himself or maybe an author says about him and get the wrong impression about God. He is a spirit, does not have a body or parts uh, with, I guess we could say, in Christ, who is God, there is that permanent assignment of the incarnation. He is glorified human being right now, okay? And that is, whew, that's a mystery of thought that can go on in that. But you understand what I'm saying. Does everybody understand this now? Does that make sense? And it gets, uh, any questions about it that I could try maybe to answer? Or maybe? Can you repeat all that? Repeat everything? <laughs> no. <laughs> I can't. All right. Anyway, think about it. As Paul says, think about these things and the Lord will give you understanding and everything or something like that, I guess. But no, it's just important to understand that when he uses terminology about eyes and ears and hands, etc., anything that could be attributed to a human being in that way, uh, we would say this is God in humility explaining to us as best he can who we are, but he does not have physical components to him. Okay, so. All right, so now took, uh, turn to Exodus chapter um, 33. And I'll show you the two main passages that we're going to just briefly begin this week and look at next time. And I think it'll take probably three of these 
sessions to get through these, um, maybe two, but we'll see. So if you look at Exodus 33 now, and beginning in verse 18, Moses said, and I'm just giving you the two key passages so you can kind of have them down because they're in two different places that we'll put together so that we can look at those. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he, that is the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. And then if you flash forward a little bit to verse, uh, chapter 34 and verse 6, the second main passage that we'll be putting together in the next couple of weeks, Look at verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Now, um, these are some of the, these passages are fairly familiar to most people that have been in and around Christianity for some time or been reading their Bibles, and I think they are very important in understanding who the Lord is. And if you remember the context now, the big picture context, this is, uh, this is actually at the uh, relaunch of Israel's history, if you will, because they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, God was given the law uh, from Mount Sinai. And now they're embarking on this journey where they are going to go into the promised land. And so God is more clearly and fully revealing himself to his people uh, now through Moses more so than he had with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they're learning much more about the Lord than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob learned, which is the nature of revelation, by the way, that God reveals himself, remember, progressively over time. And that throughout those periods of time, they kept getting more information about who God was. That leads all the way up, of course, to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. But so they're getting this information so they can really understand who he is. And one of the key things that they're going to be shown is God's mercy and grace. Because not only did he deliver them out of Egypt, but friends, I mean, if you just trace through the book of Exodus, as soon as he gets them out and they're right when they get into the, the wilderness, what do they start doing? Complaining, right? 
and uh, moaning and groaning and there's rebellion that happens and there's all these different things that happen. But there was one big event that sets the context for this that I think we have to understand before we get into the particulars of it that's really going to reveal the glory of God. Because what did, what did God, God, Moses is like, show me your glory. And there's probably a number of things he's thinking as he's thinking. I want to see, I want to see the glory of God. And we can talk more about the glory of God and what that means. But he wants to see this glory of God. And the, glory, the God said, you cannot see it in all its fullness. But what he said, I'm going to make my goodness pass before you. And I'll declare my name, the Lord, so that there is this connection between the glory of God the aspects of the glory of God that we can behold and the very name that we've been studying, Yahweh, and the goodness of the Lord. In other words, when you see the goodness of the Lord and the attributes that we're about to see and you see demonstrations of the goodness of the Lord, you're seeing his what? You're seeing his glory. So we, ha- we learn about God through not just what he says, but what he does and in his actions. And just giving you a little flash forward, we see the ultimate expression of the glory of God in Jesus Christ through the gospel and in his mission to redeem his people from their sins. This reveals the good glory of God, okay? But anyway, so the, the setting the scene for this is very important. Now Moses was up on Mount Sinai and he's receiving all of the instructions. He's receiving uh, the law and all the commandments and the instructions about the tabernacle and all these kinds of things. <clears throat> and meanwhile, down in the camp, they're becoming restless because Moses is taking too long to get down there. And they had a leader that was kind of co-leader with Moses. Who was that that was down with him? Aaron, right? His brother. And so... Um, if you look at verse, or chapter 32, this sets the context for the goodness of the glory of God. That's where I'm going. God is gloriously good, and we can see that in his actions, not just hear it from what he says, but we can see how he acts and responds, and, and especially in his redeeming work, and we behold his glory when we do that. Okay, so that's kind of where we're headed over these weeks. But look at this. When the people saw that Moses delayed, this is chapter 32 now, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Now let's just pause right there for a second and remember our history here is, what have they seen up till this point? in a demonstration of God's glory. What has Israel been able to see up to this point? Just the history, think of Exodus. What, what is it? I got a bunch of them, but I'm sure they're all right. What were you saying, Flory? Yeah, he delivered them from Egypt, and he did so in a very dramatic way that was no mistaking that he did it. The, the, the plagues. And then the water, splitting the water and letting them cross over. The pillars. The pillars, yes. Oh, that were following them, yes. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, yep. They've seen dramatic things. What else? Manna. Manna, right. 
uh, bread from heaven, miraculously sent. These people were not without information. They had even been present at, when the Ten Commandments were given and the covenant was made, and they were, they were beholding the, that awesome presence of the Lord that's frightening, actually, uh, coming from the mountain. And so they had seen enough of the glory of God to make this account actually ridiculous. I mean, it's just, you're almost reading this and you're like, are you kidding me right now? So what does Aaron do? So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, listen, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation here and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Yahweh. And they rose up early the next day, offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. That was a, it's a euphemism for doing things they should not have been doing. Immorality. This became a pagan, drunken fest with all of the stuff that goes with it. Now, Think about how egregious this is. Here God had revealed himself to them as Yahweh, I am. He demonstrated his glory in powerfully delivering them out. He actually fed them, cared for them, was already patient with them. And he gets to the point, Moses is up on the mountain for that short amount of time and they fashion something a golden calf, and say, this is, this is your God. This is not a small sin. This is, this is a horrific sin. And this isn't the sin of idolatry from an ignorant people, like in the lands all surrounding them. Those, those people are God ignorant, and they like Paul says, suppress the truth in their unrighteousness and they exchange the glory of God. Well, look at that. It's on your handout. Look at that verse. This is what they're doing. Um, you see it, Romans 1, 22 and 23, when Paul, remember, is indicting all of the world and the nations. What does he say about them? He says, claiming to be wise. You see that on the handout? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. That's exactly what they're doing. They, they exchange the glory of the great I am for an image of a calf and worshiped it. I used to think, in Romans 1, as a matter of fact, when we preached through it, I was looking at Romans 1 and Romans 2, and I said, Romans 1 is about the nations. Romans 2 is only about the Jews. But I've slightly modified that to see that actually Romans 1 is about all peoples, including the Jews. 
This is the reaction of all peoples, fallen people, including Jews, to God. Even the Jews did exactly what Paul was pointing out the nations were doing. They had fallen prey to all of those things. When we see what, when we look at Israel in the scriptures, we got to remember that they are kind of a microcosm of everyone else. So what you see them do, God is showing we all are like this. It's never like, this is why Paul in Romans 10 will tell, uh, no, Romans 11, when he's talking about how uh, Gentiles have been grafted into the vine, and he's like, do not become proud about this, Gentiles. You know, the idea is you are no better than them. You're grafted into the vine by the grace of God. That's the, the idea. But it's, the idea is that this is a really bad sin, So, he says, verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, this, I'm sorry, back in 30 to Exodus 32, the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshiped it sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. After all, he is the God who sees, right? (laughs) Moses had no idea this had been going on down there. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make of you a great nation. Let me ask you a question. God is saying, Moses, go down, leave me alone, because I am going to break forth my wrath on these people and utterly consume them. Is that a righteous response? Is it understandable? It's completely understandable. It is a response that we should have no problem with, actually, when we read that, if we understand the context of what they're doing here. They deserved to be annihilated. And he's actually saying that I may make a great nation of you. He had promised that to Abram. Remember when he called Abram out in Genesis 12, I'm going to make of you a great nation? Well, he did. They went from just a handful to a couple million in their time in Egypt, and he delivers them out. Now it's this great nation, but they're rebelling against him in such a dramatic way, such a blatant way that God is going to consume them. And say, it says to Moses, I'll make another one through you. Okay. And then what happens is that Moses and the rest of these verses here in chapter 32, the idea behind them is this. Moses is interceding, isn't he? I think it was one of the first messages I ever preached was from Exodus 32, way back. There's probably a tape out there somewhere. I wouldn't let you have it if I had it. I hope it's buried somewhere and locked in a national security archive along with all my original sermons and stuff. But it was on the concept of man's need of an intercessor. And this is something we learn very, this is something we learn about God right, right away. God is showing us something here. God's eternal plan was not to destroy Israel. What God was going to show is that in order to know him, in order to 
worship him. In order to be his people, human beings need an intercessor. And so Moses is interceding, reminding, remember an anthropomorphism, God about the covenant as though God needed to be reminded about the covenant he made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, reminding God about what the Egyptians are gonna say. You brought them out here and then you destroyed them in the wilderness. You know, and Moses is pleading this case and the Lord turns from what he was going to do um, in, I can't even find it now, but you get the idea. The Lord turned from what he was going to do at the intercession of Moses. Now, in the doctrine of God, and we didn't even get to the glory of God yet, so I apologize for that. These things take me longer, and I think they're gonna take me, but... What is God showing the, uh, okay, so man needs an intercessor and what is this account pointing us to now in our relationship with God? Okay, God's mercy. Jesus though, right? His mercy in Christ who is our intercessor and that God sends one far greater than Moses who actually goes to the cross and makes intercession for the people, you see. He actually goes to the cross and pays for our sins because what we'll learn is that God God doesn't just let the sin of Israel hang out there somewhere and lo, there's never justice because we're all saying justice is you wipe these people out for what they've done. That's justice. But what does God do? God puts forth his son. Remember, Romans 3, he puts forth his son, a propitiation. He bears that wrathful indignation for all of our sins so that what we can know is when we trust in Christ, when we turn from our sin and trust from Christ, what do we have from God but grace and mercy and forgiveness and the keeping of that steadfast love, okay? So to do, when we, this is one reason too, when, when, we, when I pray on Sunday mornings, I will begin by saying something to this effect that, Father, we approach you now in the name of Jesus. And we recognize that in and of ourselves, we deserve the same righteous indignation that the Israelites deserved. We could not approach you except that you had provided this intercessor for us, this one who paid for our sins, the, the just for the unjust, so we can become righteous and worship you, okay? So in the doctrine of God, understanding that his holiness, his righteous indignation against sin is in what we're seeing pictured here of Israel isn't just that they are guilty of these things. We're supposed to see, oh, we're guilty of these things. It's what Paul's teaching in Romans 1, that we're all under this wrath of God and that Christ now was put forward for our propitiation. So we have access to God now through him, okay? Good, that's uh, the time of our teaching here. It's 545. What, what questions do we have about that? Next, week, next time we'll pick up on the glory of God. We're gonna talk about that because uh, that's one of those topics that you're like, what is the glory of God? And the scripture has a lot to say about the glory of God and different aspects of it and that. But any questions about this or thoughts? I just wanna say that the Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it, because it really reveals God's, and he was talking about the fact that um, using these anthropomorphisms and what God has gone through to reveal himself to us, right, and to teach us and explain to us even about himself, and that condescension, that's why I keep using that terminology, something he was not obligated to do but does out of his grace and mercy so that we can enjoy him forever. What a grace that is, that we get to enjoy the glory of God forever and ever. Good, anything else? Yes. What would they be of? Oh, well, people debate that, of course, because, um, because Jesus did take human form, and so they say, you know, it's the imagination that we can use of what he looked like and different things. Uh, it's not something I'm, a, I'm particularly fond of or think that we should be doing that. Um, but, yeah. I mean, they're not... I, and I think, too, you don't want them worshiping that. I'm going to say something now that because as I was thinking that and it might open a can of worms and then I'm just going to say, but we, that's our time. But like, <laughs> if you think about dramas about Jesus or let's say television shows about Jesus, like The Chosen, see the problem with that I would see that could arise from that is that uh, when they see this person that's playing Jesus, portraying him, and even in personality or the way he laughs or the way he interacts or the way he said something from Scripture, the problem is we have no idea that that's how he reacted or what he looks like. And I, feel, I fear the problem with that could be that when people start thinking about Jesus, they're thinking not maybe not even about the biblical Jesus, but they're thinking about this real likable character on there, which let's be honest, he was very, he's a very likable person uh, and in presentation of Jesus. That's why the show is so popular because this, his representation of Jesus is really good. So I think we need to be very careful. That's, I guess that's what I'm saying with what we do with representations of, of Jesus. I'm not saying, you know, you can't watch those things or that, but I'm, for me, it, it, um, it, it's something we need to be careful with. Yeah? Isn't it impossible, though, to present Jesus to children without some kind of imagery in the yeah. Bible stories without imagery of some type? Yeah, I don't know if it's impossible, but I know what you're saying. We use flannel graphs, and we use these things in books that picture Jesus Again, though, I'm saying just the idea of being careful and cautious with it would be helpful, right? And not attributing something to that image that we don't know. Um, and again, that's where, to me, the personality thing comes in, you know, certain personality characteristics that yeah, I sit there and go, okay, but are you really falling in love with the real Jesus or are you falling in with his portrayal of Jesus? So, caution. All right. Good. Yes? Yeah. But Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that has always existed, but yet, obviously, Jesus came to earth at a certain, certain period of time. Right. And then, and then ascended to heaven, and then, and then the Holy Spirit came down. Is that right? But prior to that, help me understand the, the, the triune God yeah. always existing. Is that right? It's, it's yes. Those 
always existed. Yes, yeah. The, the one being of God eternally existed in three distinct but equal, we use the term persons, which can be misunderstood because we're thinking of people when we think of persons, but they use this terminology of persons, three distinct <laughs> beings, yet one God sharing the one essence. And it is specifically the Son who took on flesh. We're told he was sent into the world, uh, that he became man and stuff. Now, some of that gets real tricky on, this is why we call it the mystery of the incarnation, because we can't say that God changed in any way or because he's unchangeable. But then, then how do we describe that terminology other than maybe it is somewhat anthropomorphic nature and the son was sent, the son you know, takes on human flesh. That's truly real, obviously, and literal. But how all that works out within the one being of God and remaining God and unchangeable is somewhat of a mystery to theologians. So, but yes, to answer your question, always eternally, eternally past, the three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, have existed Co-eternally, and there was no change in the Godhead, no change in God, when Jesus, when the Son became a man, Jesus of Nazareth. He assumed he actually he retained his full deity. This is what's too so mysterious and wonderful, that even in the incarnation he retains the fullness of his deity with no uh, change in the in the in the nature of God. He assumes, they say, this is a term the theologians will use, I think, is the idea of he, he assumes to himself uh, humanity without changing divinity and without adding to God, but yet assumes a human, human nature. Yep. Good. Yeah, Mark. The, the confession talks about God being without passion. Yes. They think of the wrath of God and the jealousy yeah. of God, and they struggle to think of that uh-huh. as, as not passion. Yeah, you and everyone else. So there's another, tra- and I didn't bring it up tonight because I thought, let's, let's park on that another time because it in and of itself is really a, a challenge. It's probably a, it's, it's a huge challenge for me. I keep thinking about it and all this. But essentially, there's not only anthropomorphisms, but there are anthropopathisms because that uh, word pathos or you know, uh, emotions, passion, maybe even suffering is the idea that God cannot suffer and that God does not change in and of himself and that we can't ascribe entirely a human emotions to who God is. And we've got to be careful with things like wrath. Because if I express wrath right now, you'd all know it. I'd probably take this and I'd throw it across the room and I'm out of control. And yet God's wrath is just a perfect expression of his nature uh, that is his response to sin. And it is, um, along with the other emotions that are ascribed to God, some theologians go as far as to say that God does not feel in the way that a human being feels. That, but that's why I said, that's something we really got to save. And that, that passions is really throws everybody off. We can get, I think we can get the anthropomorphisms down, but we start talking about things like his wrath or uh, displeasure or the fact that the spirit is grieved. 
that's, that's where I started going, okay, what do we, how do we work through that? And we'll do that in another time, maybe. <laughs> we'll see what happens. They call that, um, oh, impassibility. Uh, the, the doctrine of divine impassibility coming from passion. He cannot suffer. God does not suffer in and of himself. And so if we think about certain things like sorrow or grief, that's a form of suffering in our minds. We don't want to sorrow. If you're grieving, you don't want to be grieving. So can we, attri- can we attribute this in its fullest sense to the Godhead who is you know, eternally blessed or what have you? So that's very, it's very confusing to me, to be honest. Yes? Well, then, if he can't feel those things like humans, then, but the Bible says that he knows our weaknesses, our sorrows, and our, and our pain. So yeah. he has to be able to... Right. But specifically, and this is what they will say to that, that in order for God to sympathize with humanity in its suffering, it required the incarnation. So in other words, if we, if we read about texts in the New Testament that talk about God or Jesus being able to suffer with his people, he does so as a man. Hebrews chapter 4, this great high priest who is not unable to sympathize with our weaknesses as which God, who knows our weaknesses, has never experienced it. Or to sympathize with our sufferings as God, who, who knows of them completely and thoroughly, but never experienced it. You see, so it is it required, and this is one of the great things about the incarnation, it requires the incarnation, and it requires the eternal Son to assume human nature to become like us in every way in order to be that sympathetic high priest. This ties in again to this amazingness of God's willingness and the extent to which he goes to make himself known to us and to save us and to, to li- you know, that we can live with him forever and that the Son... And, and the, it's, the G, it's Jesus that suffers. It's the human Jesus that takes upon himself the suffering. That's what they would say to that. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's difficult because he still is all-knowing, so he has to know. Right. But there's a difference in knowing, there's a difference in knowing something about something and experiencing it. So Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, he talks about the fact that God made him who knew no sin be sin for us, right? So that we could be, right? well, knew no sin. Jesus lived on this earth for 33 years, experienced all the sins of humanity against him, listening to people his whole life, seeing sins. He knew about sin, but Jesus never had the internal uh, knowledge, the full knowledge of relationship to sin that any other, and as a matter as, as a, an example, Jesus never knew the guilt of feeling guilty because he lied to his parents, right? Or uh, because he said something mean to somebody. He had no experiential knowledge with sin until the cross. And this is why you see Jesus becoming so overwhelmed in the garden and, and even feeling on the cross divine displeasure. He'd never felt that ever. He knew about divine displeasure. He knew about hell. He knew about the wrath of God, 
But he had no, as a, as a human, he had no experience with this at all until the cross. So, so he can know about something and not having experienced it. I think we can relate to that. I can talk to somebody who's experienced something and say, I'd never, you know, experienced that. So. The Bible, going back to this gentleman's, you know, triune God question. Uh, the Bible is a spirit, soul, and body mm-hmm. in mankind. You know, when God said, you know, let us make man in our image, you know, soul and spirit, I, and I may be wrong here, I think kind of ties into that whole thing. Uh, because, you know, it talks about John 4, 24, talks about uh, our ability through the spirit to be able to converse with God, to go to God. It goes beyond intellect. This is, this is something deeper that God has put within us so that we can have that relationship. Uh, and then in Matthew 16, 26, talks about the soul, uh, the meeting between spirit and our body, possesses self-consciousness. Uh, and then body, obviously, what we are. Uh, so you know, we, we, we kind of share in a very minor sense. I think that attribute that we apply to God is, is yes. triune. Well, we have a non-corporeal part of us. Yes, yes, yes. right, in we our are, spirit. We yeah. are, in a sense, similar mm-hmm. uh, to, to God. So. Yeah, yeah. In our minute little way. Mm-hmm. What's that? In our minute little way. Yeah, right, yes. And I think that would be, hit, you know, really bringing out more of what it is to be in the image of God is in internal and not the external. But good. Well, we got to end it there at six. I keep my I keep my promise. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for revealing yourself to us and um, condescending to us and for us. And um, Father, now we think about you, and we even think about things we can't figure out, and that should just make us worship you more because we can't figure you out. And so I'm praying now that you would. Um, cause us to love you more and praise you more even this week and that our doctrine of God would move from our head to our hearts and out into our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus, amen.